can we buy some of your beer? And I would say, well, I'm just a home brewer and I only make two cases of bottles at a time. So here's a couple. I'd be happy to share it with you. No, no charge. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. Today, I am with Sean Lawson. He's the owner of Lawson's Finest Brewery. Anybody who lives here in Vermont knows all about Sip of Sunshine, which is a wonderful IPA that his company produces. His story is a really interesting one, and I wanted him to come on the podcast today to share a myth about uh, growing a business. But before I do, I want to tell you that Sean uh, has a very interesting background. He has a bachelor's in environmental science, a master's in forestry, and of course then became a brewer. Uh, His beer is not only loved by myself and people in the Valley, but he's won many awards for his specialty maple beers and his IPA actually has garnered awards at the World Beer Cup, Great American Beer Festival, and at two national IPA championships. In 2018, so just last year, Sean and his wife, Karen, opened the Waitsville Brewery Taproom and Retail Store. So welcome, Sean. I'm so glad you could stop by and say hi. Thanks, Kathleen. I appreciate you hosting me on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited today to talk about your myth, which is pursuing your passion is not profitable. So tell us a little bit about why you picked that myth. So when I started brewing, I was a student at UVM. Uh, which is really scary to think how that, how long ago that was. So <laughs> that was back in 1990. I started homebrewing when a friend of mine introduced me to the craft, and I invited me over for a beer and cracked a couple of them open, and I tasted it, and I was like, wow, you made this? And he's like, yeah, I made it. I cooked it up in my kitchen. And I said, this is, this is amazing. This is better than what you can buy in the store. Can you show me how? And he said, sure thing. And the next thing you know, two weeks later, I ran out and grabbed some basic home brewing equipment and we're cooking up a batch of homebrew in my kitchen. And so uh, back then, uh, which is now going back 29 years ago, I I fell in love with the craft of of homebrewing and started visiting uh, microbreweries, which is what we called them back before the term craft beer was hatched, and really fell in love with beer and making beer in a lot of different ways. And so I picked the myth because I didn't really even know that my passion could be a business venture. Right after I graduated from UVM with environmental science degree, I went into doing field work, both with uh, wildlife, uh, education, and then um, in forest science, which led me back to UVM for my master's work. And so I actually had my very first job out of college 
after I did a field season was uh, washing dishes at the Breckenridge Pub and Brewery because I really wanted to be a ski bum for a winter. (laughs) (laughs) That's a familiar uh, Vermont story, isn't it? Yeah, moved to Colorado and be a ski bum for a year. My dad was thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) And so I saw that the Breckenridge Pub and Brewery was a really humming place. It was happening. People wanted to be there. It was a great vibe, very busy place. I noticed that it was certainly a good business to be in. But it never occurred to me at that point in time that it could be a calling or a career for me because I saw myself more as a scientist, as an educator. Um, Yet at the same time, I had this passion of really making beer and creating it myself and sharing it with other people. And so I didn't... I didn't realize that my passion could be a business just yet. So before I ask you kind of the turning point, I'm wondering, do you think being trained as a scientist has been helpful in terms of being a brewer? I imagine so, but... Absolutely. Uh, Science and math in particular are very important in the brew house, Um, doing basic calculations, recipe formulation, having that scientific background and sort of a methodical approach to, to brewing, to trial and error, to hypothesizing, because there are so many different variables that go into making a batch of beer, um, that 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 scientific mindset and approach of being methodical, recording everything that you do, and being comfortable around mathematical calculations, which really can be very complex or pretty straightforward in the brewery. That definitely helped me out and and helped in the early days of um, launching our business when I did finally reach that turning point of realizing, hey, you know, maybe this is something I should consider um, as a career. So tell me when that turning point happened, because you just left us off as a dishwasher out in Breckenridge. (laughs) And I know that, uh, you know, I know a little bit about your history, but tell the listeners when you started to realize, "Mm, maybe my passion can be profitable. So after uh, after my winter of ski bumming in Breckenridge, I continued to work in environmental science doing really seasonal work. I, I pursued uh, forestry work that was a better than half the year of working out on the national forests out west um, for the next four or five years before I moved back to Vermont to pursue my master's and got into uh, educational work as a park naturalist uh, with the state parks and realized that I found that to be much more engaging and rewarding than just measuring trees and pursuing Uh studies, um, which were also really fascinating, um, led me to my master's work looking at uh, mercury and acid deposition up on Mount Mansfield. Wow. And a lot of different journeys along the way. But the the summer as a park naturalist um, got me hooked on the educational component of environmental science, um, conservation education. And I worked with Keeping Track, which is a nonprofit dedicated to um, training scientists, training citizen scientists to gather information about wildlife in their communities and integrate it into the planning process. And working for the parks as a naturalist gave me the idea to start the naturalist program up at Mad River Glen, oh, right, which is a gig right. I still have today. Yeah, so I did notice that, that I, you haven't quit yeah, that, that gig, which I, is awesome. I too. still keep one foot <laughs> in that world, and that helps keep me sane running a business and helps get me out on the mountain. So just very briefly, what's the naturalist program seeing? um, You and I know what we're talking about. 
uh, it's primarily uh, a winter-based program that uh, utilizes snowshoe touring as a way to get folks out in the woods and educate them about the the wildlife and the forest ecology and the habitats of um, Stark Mountain and the Green Mountains in general. And it offers folks that are visiting our area a way to see the mountain in a little bit different way than whizzing down the slopes really quickly. And also gives people that are with a group or a spouse that maybe they're really not into skiing that much another way to get out and, and enjoy the mountain. And so it ha- those programs happen every weekend um, during the winter season when the ski area is open. Um, so that's something I, that the educational component of working prior to starting a business got me hooked on and the park naturalist gave me that idea to start that program and it's been great it's been going great ever since then it's hard to believe that that was 25 years ago when we started the naturalist program right after mad river was turned into a cooperative where the skiers bought the mountain um and now run it as a as a cooperative so there are a lot of interesting stories in there i can imagine that would be a whole nother podcast yeah, yeah but to bring us full circle to sort of how did i get to the point of deciding well maybe this home brewing hobby could be a business was a lot of encouragement from friends and family my craft at uh, as a home brewer continuing to get better and better uh visiting breweries and uh meeting brewers asking questions uh reading a lot of journals or just magazines and books about brewing and then folks started encouraging me to think about selling my beer or friends and family <laughs> would encourage would me request it would they request they, it? they would say hey, can we buy some of your beer and <laughs> i would say well i'm just a home brewer and i only make two cases of bottles at a time so here's a couple i'd be happy to share it with you no no charge uh-huh. and so it was that encouragement from other people and sort of growing more mature as a person to realize that that beer uh, could be a calling. And when I graduated from college, I saw it as just kind of something as a, a means to an end, which is fun and uh, enjoying some really good uh, flavors and aroma of of a beer. And I, through that experience of just growing a little bit older and a lot of different life experiences, saw that brewing beer is actually an act of creation where it's like an artist or a cook when you go into the brewery and craft up a recipe for the first time that you have this palette of ingredients that you put together in your own way to create something that is unique because each batch is actually unique in that it's a living product and um, we always strive for consistency but every brew is in a way an act of creating something new and realizing that along with encouragement from other folks is what helped me reach that turning point of maybe I should give this a try. Yeah, it was interesting when I first um, heard your name and heard of Sip of Sunshine. I I believe it was already in stores, but it was still at the point where it would show up on a Tuesday at, what, 10 a.m. and be gone at Mm 10.15 in the morning. And so I can remember being out at an event. You probably don't even remember this, but it was a flotilla on Blueberry Lake. And all of a sudden, it was a bunch of people coming up with, um, you know, kayaks and canoes. And and all of a sudden, here comes Karen and Sean Lawson. And I didn't know who you guys were. And you, you join the flotilla and somebody whispers to me, that's Sean Lawson. He makes sip of sunshine. And I was, you know, starstruck. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, that's Sean Lawson at the end of the flotilla. Um, and that was before you really, really went big. So when did you decide, I'm going to go from selling it a little bit to this is going to be my full-time job? 
Uh, you know, right when we started the business, which was in 2008, it really was a hobby business because I had a pretty good career as a forester, forest scientist, and I was working with uh, the University of Vermont um, and the state of Vermont on a program called the Vermont Monitoring Cooperative, and it was a great gig, and I had mm-hmm. it was I had benefits, and it's a you know it was a career for me, so I wasn't quite ready to make the full leap of saying I'm just going to quit my job and start a business. So I started Lawson's Finest as a hobby business on the side, nights and weekends, with a very small um, brewing system in a building that we built for the brewery next to my house uh, up in Warren uh, that is like the size of a shed. People often call it the, like they they say, I put the brewery in a garage or in a shed, but it was a building that was built just for the brewery. And so doing that on nights and weekends right away because I had a following as a home brewer. People bought it up, as you mentioned, as fast as we could make it. And after about a year of doing that, I realized, okay, this there really is something to this. It could be a viable business. And I decided to really make the leap to quit my job and start brewing full-time. And that enabled me to, on a very small system, uh, grow the amount of beer that I was brewing quite a bit from the, the starting days, but it was still a tiny amount of beer. And so after doing that for a couple of years, uh, I added some bigger brewing equipment that allowed me to take the next step to increase our capacity by about um, three times. And yet still that was a very small operation with a seven-barrel brewery, 200 gallons at a time. Each batch had split into bottles and to kegs, and I get about 20 small kegs, the logs that go out to accounts, and about 50 cases of bomber bottles. So it was still really a tiny amount, and we kept getting uh, more publicity about our beers because people were talking about them. There was this great um, grassroots sort of word of mouth marketing. Now, that did happened. you fuel that at all? Not at all. It was very awesome. organic. It was very customer driven. And the customers have actually helped to, um, in a way, form the business plan that we had over the years because I never imagined that our beer would be so popular or in such demand that we'd distribute it all over New England and the Northeast that we do now. I originally thought maybe, you know, we'd be some, a beer that could be successful and well known but people would have to come to Vermont to buy our beer. That would we'd be at that scale, and so it was. It was in uh, 2014 when we decided to make the leap because there was every year there was this increasing demand, and what I didn't like about the business was always saying no because I kept getting phone calls from distributors, from customers, from sure. retailers. The demand was bigger than you could keep up with. Much bigger, and so we looked at uh, a different model of doing business rather than right away launching into a big capital expansion and hiring a lot of people, which with young kids, we didn't feel like we were quite there yet. And so Two Roads Brewing was opening right at that same time with a business model to both brew their own brand, but to be uh, a contract brewer for today's craft brewer. And what that means is a lot more flexibility than traditional contract brewers with use of ingredients, process, uh, technique, and and uh, a willingness to work with their customer or other brewers that will be their clients to make beer in the way that that brewer really wants to make it. And that opened up the possibility of making beer somewhere else on a larger scale without having to launch into a whole building enterprise. Um, So 
we decided to make that leap of faith because it's a huge uh, leap to put your product into someone else's hands and have them brew it for you. And I was very hesitant about doing that. So we went about it very methodically and carefully and said at the outset, if the test batches aren't up to what we would anticipate and what our fans would expect, then we're not going to go forward with this arrangement because the the brand value that we had already created was too was too valuable to do to ruin it by putting out a product that wasn't up to the standard of excellence and quality right. that we had really established. Now, when you tell your story or when you talk about the beer, I always think how strategic you are. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the scientist part of you, um, but. Starting a business, and, and your wife's in the business, Karen, mm-hmm. as well, and uh, you now have employees and you've made a big impact in this community. I'm wondering, what are the money conversations that you had to have along the way or, um, you know, to decide, I'm going to turn this passion into something that's profitable? I imagine there had to be some money conversations a lot, around. Along yeah, the way. A lot. Yeah. So just at a high level, you know, when did you start having these conversations and how did you, um, and I don't know if it was you and Karen or you and a business partners, you know, start to look at, okay, this is a passion. Now we need to get strategic and, and financial and figure out how to turn this into a, a business that's going to support my family. Sure. Uh, a lot of different levels of those conversations. Uh, so a quick overview was the very beginning uh, was starting with very little and a lot of sweat equity. So um, I put in about $15,000 between the building and the brewing equipment to launch the original hobby scale uh-huh. business. And then when it came to the next phase, you know, that was more of a six figure investment to even put in a small seven barrel uh, brewing system. And so at that point, uh, the conversation was, was, I wouldn't say easy, but it went fairly seamless to say, okay, this is going really well. We've got a product in demand. Let's mm-hmm. borrow money from the bank and, uh, and to, to get us to this next stage. To help you leverage kind of what you're R- already right. doing, get some investment or some dollars but, to work with to grow. But it may, but what was required was mortgaging the house to as a, as collateral to get that loan and so that was the hard part of that conversation but we both felt Karen and I felt confident that it would work and so that went very well and we were able to pay off that uh, business loan fairly quickly and then um, what was great about the next step working with two roads is what we were um, gambling on was our reputation and the quality of the beer. So it didn't require capital, but it did require Uh that leap of faith. And from the beginning in our business plan, we had uh, always planned to open a facility in Waitsfield when we were ready. And so 10 years into the business seems like the right time for us to, to reach that level of maturity. And that was a much more difficult conversation um, for us both, not in terms of disagreeing, but in, but in terms of the risk associated with borrowing millions of dollars to build a new facility, to put in all new brewing equipment, to create uh, a tap room and a retail store and administrative offices. I mean, it's a beautiful facility, but it, it you know, just on the outset of how beautiful I can imagine, you know, what type of investment. And so, you know, being strategic, having those conversations, it sounds like you and Karen primarily being on the same page. What I'm hearing, and, and I think this might uh, tie into the myth, is that in order to turn your passion into something that was profitable, you had to take on a fair amount of financial risk. 
maybe other risks too, but financial risks. Would you say that's true, Sean? Or? It is. It was in a measured way. So taking it slowly was an important part of turning the passion that I have for brewing into a profitable enterprise. So first it was seeing that it could put, be a business venture. Um, and then second was investing sweat equity. So it's not easy. And that's sort of part of the, um, not really myth, but what's often the case in small businesses is that it does take a lot of hard work, sweat equity. It's not profitable at the beginning, but the passion is what drives drives you drives the persistence. I can identify keep, with that yes, a little bit. Yes, to keep with it and um, to get through the early period of having to really invest your time and your effort uh, to the extent that it gets the business to a profitable standpoint. And for me, what was what was really fun about that was. I wasn't quite sure launching into it as a business whether pursuing the passion would become, you know, drudgery. Like I yes, didn't want to like turn some. Job. I didn't want forbid. To, right. Yeah. I didn't want to turn <laughs> something that was really fun into something that was just a grind. And instead, what I found was being passionate about making beer. It made it like not like work. And so that was yep. the key to um, having the, my passion for making beer turn into a profitable business was just staying at it and with it and feeling like it's not even work, like I'm really enjoying the hard work that that goes into this. When you decided to open up the facility here in Waitsfield, how did you decide what type of financial risks you were going to take and and if you were going to get investors or how you were going to do that? From the beginning, Karen and I were really clear that we didn't want investors looking over our shoulders or telling us how to run the business. So it took uh, all the years of hard work and the success of the Sip of Sunshine to generate enough income where we would be in the position to finance a new venture, building a new brewery and a tap room with just bank financing. So Karen and I are really proud that we've been able to retain 100% ownership in our business. And I think for a small and growing business, that's an important consideration to uh not give up equity too soon. For a lot of people, it may be the right decision to have investors, and there may not be any other way. And I know a number of business owners who have investors where it's been uh, both a successful and a good relationship where they investors can bring expertise. But for us, we were really wanted to retain 100% ownership in our business, and we were able to do that through bank financing on our, um, on our new venture. So uh, we're really proud of that. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting to be able to do that. And you also mentioned like timing, and it may mm-hmm. be that uh, for different people at different times, having investors makes sense. But you do lose um, some control, mm-hmm. and you have to, you know, produce numbers and answer to different people. And you know, your brand is so tied in with who you are and who your family is mm. um, that it kind of makes sense that you'd retain that ownership. It allowed us, us to it allowed us to take a slow and methodical approach to growing the business and not uh, be pressured into growing quickly or on a time frame that wasn't what was really fitting with our quality of life because that was another one of our core values of uh, that still drives our business is that uh, quality of life uh, and quality of product are essential. And so uh, we, we've always wanted to make sure that there's a good work-life balance and taking the slow road to, to growth really helped us to do that. I have another question for you around uh, your tips and how the tips are handled at your uh, facility or your business. Tell us a little bit about 
um, tipping the bartenders and and what that looks like because I was really shocked the first time mm-hmm. I showed up and I said, oh, this is something I hadn't heard of. Mm-hmm. In our in our research and development for the new facility, Karen and I visited a number of breweries and wineries and distilleries. It was really hard work. I was about to say that's tough research. Yes, <laughs> and. Several of the breweries we visited had this no-tip program. They Everyone calls it something else. But what we saw was the opportunity to uh, create a really powerful vehicle for fundraising and for philanthropic giving because we have a good, solid business with a brewery that has a nice margin that we could pay a, our staff a livable wage and they could rely on a full-time income and not be subject to the seasonality of our area, which is very seasonal with a tourism-driven economy here in the Mad River Valley. And it enabled us to attract uh, the type of employees that would really be dedicated to to our business and and hopefully keep them for the long run. Um, But seeing that idea at other breweries, there were just a couple of them that we saw give us this idea that, hey, this could be a really great model for us to... Um, pay our employees well, create livable wages, enhance the economic vitality here in the Mad River Valley, and have this really powerful vehicle to give back to the community. So every month we have um, two different organizations that we split the month between, and all the tips go to uh, to these nonprofit organizations. So we'll have 26 different groups in our first year of operating that we'll give to, and it's amazingly powerful, the, the, the gift of giving that our customers provide because they're so accustomed to tipping. And again, it does take away from the bottom line for us. So instead of paying a a minimum service wage, we pay a full living wage plus benefits for all of our Mm full-time employees. And in the short amount of time, just over... Uh, five months that we've been open, we've already generated a hundred over a hundred thousand dollars in charitable giving through the No Tip program. I just love that program, and I remember mm-hmm. the first time I went to give a tip, and they were, "Oh, we don't tip, but it goes to this charity." And I was like, "I get to drink beer and give money and give back. This is an awesome blend." So it's a really cool program, and I love the living wage part of it as well. Thanks. What I'm wondering, just to get back to the myth for a second, you know, there may be people out there that want to pursue their passion and are convinced that it can't be profitable. Is there any upside to believing this isn't going to work? You know, I I understand you push forward and you're a success story, but I just wonder if it serves people to think, you know what, I really love doing this, but I don't want this as my job or this isn't going to be profitable. For me, it was, it served me to buy into that in the beginning that I needed more time and and maturity. So in a way, for a period of time, it could serve you to buy into that myth. Because if you're not all in on starting a business, then uh, even if you're passionate about it, it's it's much more difficult to make it work. And so for me, I, I needed more time and maturity to get to the point of realizing that, hey, this this thing that I'm really passionate about, homebrewing, actually could be a, not only uh, a business and a career, a calling, uh, but it could be profitable too. Yeah. No, it's funny because what that reminds me of, I'm flashing to a business trip I took a girlfriend on. We were sitting at one of those wine bars and she said, I've always wanted to own one of these wine bars. And I said, well, Karen, owning a wine bar is a much different thing than sitting at the wine bar drinking wine. (laughs) So I convinced her uh, when she sobered up that maybe that wasn't a good business move for her. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard for me to uh, find time to sit at the 
at the bar at Lawson's Finest. That well, you're probably also room. crowded by yeah. people as well. Yeah. And and just enjoy a beer yeah. there in the way that I would when I'm at someone else's place. So, yeah. for sure. Well, you know, you're inspiring, I think, to a lot of people, uh, certainly in this community, but in general, in terms of taking something that you are good at, eventually, uh, strategically, and with the right amount of calculation and responsibility, you know, turning it into a, a very nice business. What suggestions would you have for or tips for someone who's listening in that says, you know, maybe I'm at this place where I do have a passion. Maybe it's not beer, maybe it is. And I want to turn it into a business. So what thoughts would you want to share with them? I think research is the first place to start really doing your homework and kind of gathering as much information as you can about that particular business that you might consider launching or starting and visiting as many of those types of businesses as you can in the time that you have um, mm-hmm. R&D for us was really critical in building our new facility and in the initial launch of thinking about what are the kinds of beers that I want to make, what kind of impression do I want to make on people, how do I want them to feel about the beer. So I would say really doing research and not only about those parts of the business, but then really digging into the financial part is essential because that's the the place where so many small business owners stumble up. It's yes. that they have a great, they might have a great product and a great idea, but translating that into a business and running a business is very different than being, you know, just a, a great uh, artisan or a product maker or whatever the, the craft that you may be into. So R&D which it sounds like you have been very good at and has led to your success. And also, uh, you know, I'm going to use my terms, breaking money silence around the finance, really looking Mm -hmm. at the financial picture and is this going to make sense with where I'm at in my life? It also Mm -hmm. sounds like there was a piece for you of, you know, when was the right time Mm -hmm. and financially, when did it make sense? Uh, And so I am sitting here today with Sean Lawson, the owner of Lawson's Finest Brewery. And so, Sean, for people who are listening in, because we have listeners from all over the place, uh, where can they find out more about your beer and your brewery in case they get to Vermont or in case they're in one of these states where you are currently available? Lawson'sFinest.com. Our website is always the best place to start to gather information about our brewery, to learn a little bit about our story. And we've got links there if you want to know more about the story to some great articles that have been written over the years. Uh, There's complete information about all the different varieties of beer that we make and about our new facility and tap room and brewery here in Waitsfield, Vermont, right in the heart of the Mad River Valley. And folks can get complete information there. We also have our hops hotline. It's 802-496-HOPS. So 4677. (laughs) And so folks can call us um, and talk to us in person too, if they have questions about Lawson's Finest. Oh, that's awesome. If I have a hops emergency, I'll give you a call. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sean, so much for stopping by the studio and spending some time with us. I've really enjoyed breaking money silence with you. Likewise. Thanks for hosting me, Kathleen. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app 
and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.